Okay, hello and welcome to episode 48 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Today's guest is the first schoolmate I've ever had on the show. What's funny is he <laughs> played well, he played a far bigger role in my life as a hardcore musician and as sort of a figurehead in the scene that I grew up in. He was a member of Unity, of Uniform Choice, uh, circled back around years later to revisit the band Winds of Promise. He's a co-founder of Wishing Well Records. He was the first punk rocker that I saw running around in a shared landscape who was doing things where I said, I kind of want to be that guy. I don't mean to put that on the spot by saying that, but I think I've shared that with him before. Anyway, let's get into that talk. How long are you? Thank you for doing this. Daniel, it's uh, my pleasure, and thanks for the kind words. I only have wonderful and fond memories of all those days. That's okay. for sure. Let's talk about those days, those earliest days. 40 years ago, you know, 82, 83, right? Right. We would we were in a lot of the same rooms, went into a lot of the same spaces. They were in dangerous areas. They were violent events. And you, me, Pat Dubar from Uniform Choice, uh, John Master Polo from from No For An Answer, uh, Zoli Teglis, we were all private school kids. What do you think that was about? That we 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 were, you know, drawn to that to that completely other world. Well, it, it was interesting because uh um, from Wisconsin, and my dad and mom split up when I was ten, and I was perfectly happy uh, going uh, playing little league and growing up in Wisconsin. My dad came out here. I followed him out here, and you know, my dad worked at Kmart, and I worked, and I lived with in the apartment buildings in in Tustin, in the hood in Tustin, and I had a great time and loved every bit of it. It was my dad and I and my uncle Bart, and that was it. So when I got into eighth grade. Um, I had played football and I had played baseball at a, a reasonably high level. And he asked me, he goes, hey, would you want to go to a private school and uh, maybe, you know, play play those sports at a higher level against higher competition? I said, damn, yeah, I would. So that's how my route was to get to modern day. What I remember is, you know, when people look at things now, punk rock is, it occupies a 40 to 50 year span of time in, in the history of the counterculture. but for the first maybe 10 years, everything was new and everything was kind of exciting and dangerous. Do you think boredom played a role? Do you think your attraction to it was intellectual? Do you think there's anything psychological about it? Because I know for me, it was the first time I didn't feel like a complete Martian was in those punk rocks. Yeah, I've said this, you know, it's funny. I, I, have, I have grown children and growing up, the basic tenets of the uh, punk rock hardcore scene, I take my whole life. I think that is the most influential time and the, the most influential people in my whole life, beside my father and my mother, were the people such as yourself, Ian Mackay, Kevin Seconds, all the boys in our, in our little fraternity groupie type thing, which was, which was uh, a hardcore in Southern California. All of those lessons I took throughout my whole life and, and passed on to my kids about brotherhood, about strength, about being who you are, about anti-drug, about anti-obsession. And for that, it's the essence of who I am. And it's those times in my life from maybe 1980, because I'm a little bit older than you are, 79, 80, to right through to, to uh, 1989, all those reformative years. It's the best of my whole life. It's funny. I feel like I'm trying to 
drive a tap into the kid flipping off the camera in the JFA jeans. <laughs> <laughs> and you really and you really refuse to give me anything before uh before the seven seconds jacket. Um, <laughs> so let's let's talk about let's talk about something. Uh you seem to me to have always been comfortable up front and garnering a great deal of attention. I remember Flipside videos came out. It would have things like seven seconds at the Olympic and stuff. And there you were front and center. And in even earlier videos, you're 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 somebody who would do a flip on the stage. Uh, <laughs> that that well, I was attracted to that kind of out front. And I'm even remembering our high school dress code. And you seem like a guy who found every way to break it without getting busted. Has that yeah, always I, been a thing? I mean, even as a small child, was that a thing? Yeah, you know, I tell you, I always wanted to be. I, I was always aggressive. I mean, yeah. you and I, you and I both remember, you know, boxing matches, you know, at your house and, and talking boxing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I always wanted to be, and I was, and listen, I'm not a big guy. I'm, I was always the smallest guy. I was always the littest guy. So that probably had something to do with a little Napoleonic complex, but it was a positive thing. I never looked at myself as a little guy or, or, um, a week in any way. You know, I played football, I played baseball, I did everything that I wanted to do. And I never saw it that way. And that's exactly what I saw in hardcore. Hardcore allowed me to be right up front, getting kicked in the face when somebody flips off the stage at a TSOL concert at the, the Palladium. You know, um, seeing guys get stabbed um, in the hallways, you know, trying to, what am I going to do? Do I run away or do I, I go towards it? You know, there are people that generally run away from things and people who run towards them. I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a hero, not, not, nothing like that, but it's like that, that aggression was something that I, 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 I seeked out and I really relished. I loved it. And guys like yourself, like-minded people were people that seemed to gravitate to that as well. Pat Dubar was one. That's why he and I were inseparable for about 10 years um, because he was a lot like that too. Just if we want something, let's go get it. And if you don't like it, fine. If we fail, fine. If you don't like it, fine. We hope you like it. But it's something that, you know, it's us. It's who we are at the moment that we're doing it. And uh, to me, that's just, you know, it's becoming who you are as a young man into um, uh, adulthood. You just said something that I didn't really expect to get out of that, which is, for me, it just drew a psychological equivalency between that sort of youthful aggression and that courage and sort of the overall nature of sort of self-definition and self-determination. That, that was kind of great to hear. It was on a little bit deeper level than I think about those times. <laughs> I'm going to do something else so because yeah. the listener will not know this. What Pat just did was very deft and very kind in the manner in which he referred to boxing. We had, and I think the kind of people who listen to this show will like to hear about this. We had sort of an all-day-long boxing thing at my house once in the 80s. I want to say it was in 88. And for the hardcore fans of that era that would be listening to this, the people, you know, banging each other in the face all that day were, you know, I think the youngest one was Regis uh, Guerin, who went on to be in Course of Disapproval. It was Mike Judge. It was John Percelli. It was me. It was Pat. And it was essentially this sort of single elimination thing. Well, the, the day boiled down to pat and i boxing each other and I i've got pat, I I, well i'm gonna i'm gonna do it because you were kind enough not to i've got that by several inches and in, in a few dozen pounds and the man beat the dog shit out of him <laughs> and he was kind enough not to say it here in this oh let me tell you something i had that was a lot of fun there's nothing like getting hit and hitting people it's a lot of fun especially when everybody is 
you know, you get mad in the moment, but it sure is a hell of a lot of fun. Well, you and I have given at least the first 15 minutes of this thing to an analysis of being a couple of meatheads. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, let's talk about making music, Pat. Sure. Um, early stuff, I'm thinking very specifically of the Unity UR1 record, but also of, of the, the, the songs that you participated on in Screaming for Change, but mostly the Unity 7-inch. Really fast, really direct, and very clear in its intentions and in its message. What I what I want to ask you is, first off, was it sort of life that directly influenced that? Was it other artists? And then when you started facilitating other people's music with a record label, did you apply those same standards or those same expectations to the artists? Well, with with, with regards to unity, um, it was it was what I was going on and what I was feeling um, to bring back to what we had talked about in the beginning of, you know, everybody's 15, 16, 17 years old. Everybody, you know, gets mad at their parents or is mad about something they can't control. Um, and there's a lot of lyrics, especially hardcore lyrics that have come out because of that. That's exactly where, where it came out for me. It was, it was pouring on paper it was something that I, you know, wanted to be a part of even a small little cog in the, in the hardcore scene, which I thought was just like the greatest thing in the whole world with slap shots and, and uh, rights of spring and dag nasties and the minor threats and black flags and all these guys, there were, there were people that, that I looked up to and bought their records and couldn't wait to get them. Like all of us did rip open the thing, look at the lyric sheets, read them, be philosophical with it, how it touched me. But I thought that the unity, the lyrics that I heard were absolutely from my heart, what I was feeling, what I was thinking, um, you know, we all have things where, you know, my mom and my dad got divorced and my mom was still living in Wisconsin. I don't get to see her very often. Things like that. All types of things like that. But it was it was such a, a labor of love. The the you are one. I wrote most of the stuff on it. Um, my mom did the calligraphy on the back for the back titles. You know, Pat and I were figuring out what we wanted to do for the cover. And I said, hey, let's go to Mile Square Park, which is in uh, Fountain Valley, which is in Orange County. And um, let's go someplace and be, you know, I want to let's name I want to name it. You are one. And I want to get Pat just, you know, solemn and thinking. And then we got the great Gavin to to paint, you know, to draw something for the back. And and then I did all the, the lyric sheet and and which led to you know, wishing well, which will lead to, it's, it kind of led into that about what do we want to do? And it was something that is a, a, such a labor of love to me. The unity uh, seven inch, you know, be kind of began it all and began was the number one thing for, for wishing well, which obviously Pat and I, uh, Pat was uh, in uniform choice and they had recorded the album and were looking to put it out somewhere. Um, they wanted to go possibly through uh, discord that that didn't work out. We have, you know, we were kind of uh, in a, in a bit of a, a quandary here. What to do? And we said, you know what? Why don't we put it out ourselves? Let's just see what we can do. And back then, it was we were both going to college. And I mean, what do you do? And we, we just said we're going to do it. And that was it. And that was final. And that's what we did. We made it work. You know, going to typesetters in downtown LA, figuring out how things work, going to sketchy parts of LA, and uh, and 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 doing back backward deals with people we knew were going to rip us off, but we wanted to get that, that album out. It wasn't about money. It was never about money or making money or anything like that. It was like, if we can manipulate this guy who thinks he's manipulating us to give us records and put them out on his dime and we could get them. It was, it was, that was the greatest thing in the whole world uh, for me. 
And I, I, I put my heart and soul into it all those years. And I loved it. And everything that we did, I loved. One of the things that I remember about Wishing Well and about the first couple of years that you guys were doing the label was that it was my first real experience with guys from my hometown working on a national. I mean, a lot of us had pen pals, right. but, you know, blasts turning up on the label when they were several hundred miles to the north. Youth of Today turning up on the label. That was really a trip. First off, which one of those happened first? Jeez, you got me on that one. I think it was Blast and then Youth of Today. I, th I think you would be right. So how does that happen? Because everybody, first off, typically bands are at least to some degree competitive. But also, it's one of the things that was always uncomfortable for me about running a label was that I always felt like when I would go to an artist, I felt sort of hat in hand. How did the thing with, with Blast come into being? First time you guys dealt with an outside artist. Pat really took the forefront with Blast. Okay. He knew them. He had talked to them. There was a, a mutual respect there. And he said, hey, listen, this is what we're doing. You know, we're just starting and this is what we can do. And um, and they were really, really good guys about it. You know, send us the artwork down. We're going to get this thing taken care of. You know, it was one of the first ones that in Youth of Today. And to me, it was a collaboration. I looked at it as a collaboration, like, let me get this thing out. I, I promise I'm going to I'm going to work really, really hard to get it aesthetically what you want it to look like. Because at the time, going back in my mind, I only cared about the aesthetics. I didn't care about money. I didn't care about any of that stuff because that was nothing that was relevant to me. It was, if we can get it out and we can make it look so good, a bunch of colors, kind of similar to the t-shirt stuff. If we can get t-shirts out and get them four colors, get them on the arms, make them look unbelievable. Like I would want to wear if somebody was selling it and then sell it for seven bucks or seven fifty, or something like that. A hooded sweatshirt for you know twelve dollars, fourteen dollars. That's all that mattered. Putting it out, making the artist proud of their love. They handed to me, you know, in the form of a package full of 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 uh, pictures and lyrics written, scribbled down, and that I had to kind of figure out like a jigsaw puzzle, put it all together, get the colors, get the typeset, make sure everything's the way they want it, get everything everything proper, maybe get a colored vinyl on there, make the labels look cool, write on the label what they thought was cool. It's just all stuff. I say, keep saying the thing cool, but it, it is. Make it look cool, because that's all I cared about. Make it look cool and make it to look 20 years or 30 years from now, you can go, I did this. This is mine. I did it. Not really about how much money I made off of it. It's this is mine and no one can take it from me. And that's how I felt. And that's how I was privileged to deal with the bands on the, the label. It, it, was, it was a labor of love to me that they would allow me into their lives, allow Pat and I, us, into their lives to give them a transformation of what they you know, loved themselves, their passion projects, and give it back to them and get it out to a bigger audience. That was the most proud I was. That's it in a nutshell. It wasn't any deeper than that. It wasn't about money and it wasn't about anything. There were always you know, rivalries, as you said earlier, Dan, with bands, you know, East Coast, West Coast type of stuff. And that's just, that's just the way guys were and, mm -hmm. and are. That's the nature of the beast. But there was never any animosity from my part because I was privileged to be able to put those things out. And I was proud, you know, of all of them, from Vic Bondi to Grave Goods to Apology to all of them. It was just really fun to do. You provide a perfect segue there. You had me wanting to talk about merchandising and about T-shirts because 
there was a time, uh, there was a time in Southern California where the just the level of saturation at every say Fenders show of wishing well merchandise was was something I have never seen duplicated since then, and I have always sought to duplicate by trying to attach as iconic as possible designs to my band. That's just a, a, a compliment phrased to sound like a question. But what you left me wanting to get you on <laughs> Thank was you. when you sure. Well, I think it was a big impact on Gavin Oglesby as well, who you involved in the creation of a lot of that. And if there's yeah. a singular influence on my visual work, which is no great accomplishment, but if there's a singular influence on the stuff I do, it's Gavin. You know, he may be my best friend, but he's also somebody whose work I emulate. And he did a ton for you guys. Yes. Not only was, and I don't ever use this term loosely, but not only was he a genius, he was and is such a gifted artist. When he did the things and, and for us, I was so and still am so appreciative of his expertise, his ability to go, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And he brings it back and you're like, OK, there's nothing to change. You 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 hit it right on the button like the wishing well guy. You know, the guy was supposed to be nondescript. He was nondescript. Uh, the uniform choice guy, the back of the uh, of uh, the unity. So many things. The cover of Scream for Change. He was a big part of Wishing Well Records, a big part, a bigger part than than people know, because he was able to legitimize our artistic vision, which I don't have the same vision at all or, or ability. And neither did Pat. And he afforded us that. And that was I was unbelievably kind. And and, uh, and and he was wonderful, just wonderful at that. I spent three decades robbing his eye and his sense of space blind. So, you know, <laughs> well, let um, me tell you something. Yeah. With, with the stuff that you have, it's it's shockingly good because I've gone through all of and followed your stuff as well. And it's it's shockingly cool how it is. I use that stupid word, but it just it just epitomizes what it is. It's something where I go, wow, somebody thought that that is really good looking. I and think that that is great. I think the era where we were all in the same space and when things were so much smaller, we all taught each other some fairly unique skill sets. Do you know what Gavin's first record was? First publicly published piece of anything that anybody saw, bumper stickers, anything? I do, but you know what it is? I have no idea. Murder in a Foreign Place front cover for Alternative Pentacles. Nice way to, wow. step, in, nice way to step into the box. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I, love, I love that band and, I, you know, that that uh, MIA was a, a, a an exceptional band. Okay, so you mentioned Bondi and you mentioned Grave Goods, and I think you might have mentioned Apology. Those things represent a stark stylistic contrast to the early music that was on Wishmill. Well. Eventually, your own band became sort of a stark contrast to itself with the with the second Uniform Choice uh, LP and with the EP that preceded it. What are your thoughts on that? I remember uh, I remember sitting down with Pat and. And going, what stuff is coming? Because by that time, people would send us stuff. You know, hey, what do you think of this for your thoughts? Would you would you want to put this out? So we would we would listen to tapes and demo tapes and things, and stuff would come out, and it was a little different and interesting. And so we, I remember, you know, sitting down and going, what about like Vic Bondi? And we both really liked it. We liked the music and his approach to it as a real artist. So. We were in a position to do it, so we did it. I looked at it this way, Dan. If I like something and it may be a bit different from the previous things that I had we had done before, I'm kind of a hypocrite if I'm worried about what everybody thinks 
about sure. everything because art is in the, it is the eye of the beholder at the time. And that's the key at the time in your life that you're making those decisions. You have to make those decisions from the heart. And that's what we did. I, you know, I, I, I stand by all of the th stuff that we put out because in each individual case, I really liked it. I found something that I liked and Pat liked about it. So you brought up something about, about it being at that time. Well, an interesting thing is to look back at things 30 years later. And this is coming from the guy who wrote About Face, about your band. Yes, you did. When, when, I, when I was pissed at, at the way, at the mindset I perceived, you know, sitting in Pat's room, you know, after the first UC tour, things like that. I regret that song. It's fun to talk about now. At least you and I are able, and me and certain people other are able to do it. I don't think Dubar and I would be able to do it. But it's an interesting thing. I regret that song in the sense that I become more and more protective of people's right to do whatever they want with their creativity and with something that they've done, whether it stylistically appeals to me or not. And even from a business standpoint, it is, for lack of a better way to put it, their business, not mine. I'm not saying we shouldn't run commentary on it, but it was an interesting thing for me to, as the decades went on, to kind of go, it's funny and it can be laughed about, but I know even as I've, I've, been sort of vocal about some things that go on in hardcore now i know i wouldn't write that song today yeah well i remember when that song came out and i got it and i read the lyrics and i wasn't angry yeah i wasn't angry at you god's truth i wasn't angry um i would say that i was disappointed but not angry because i knew you and i respected you and i could see i could see that the way that uniform choice was going or some of the songs that were going that way were something that it would alienate, had alienated you and other people at that time. So I was disappointed that we weren't able to convey the message of nobody's trying to make money here. Nobody's trying to sell out. Nobody thinks they're going to sell out. Nobody thinks that they're going to go on tour with Guns N' Roses in this band. All it was was Dave and Vic had been playing the same music for quite a bit longer than I was in the band. Mm -hmm. So it was, let's get together and try to come up with something a little slower, maybe in some portions and a little more thought provoking. That doesn't mean we hit on everything. God, no. Mm -hmm. But stuff like I am, you are in cut of a different cause was just as hard as anything that we had ever done. And I loved it, especially live uh, oh. uniform choice, live, all of those songs, some of the ones that we, we did from Staring in the Sun, they were all at, you know, warp speed. There was a five song rough mix cassette that Gavin and I dubbed in Courtney's bedroom just to just drown people who are listening to this and way too much inside Facebook. But, you know, and it had it had a, a more urgent vocal to it and it had a beefier production to it. It was some of the best work I think either of you ever did. Um, I don't think I, I wasn't as fond of the final records. I wasn't fond of the final records, but I mean, you and I have people already but sure. it was at the time i don't i think it was really common for bands and musicians to think they had a right to police one another's intentions and i've kind of grown to think that's bullshit like there are people out there doing music now hitting the road playing the same catalogs they played 30 years ago without adding a single new note without exploring an inch of new space and it does not appeal to me and i do not spend my money on it but you know what it's not my place to say they can't do it yeah, you know, you and I are in absolute agreement on that, uh, Dan. I it's it's um, just to go back the 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 five song that the the rough that we did 
was, I, I really wish I had it because it was considerably different than uh, the production on the album. I, I, again, I have, I, I remember going to Radio Tokyo and I remember um, doing the recording on that. And, and I'm by no means a recording uh, engineer. You know, I set my drums up and I play my drums. And then you're there, you go through the vocals, you do the backing vocals, you, you know, you, you put it in the hands of somebody that um, you want it to sound a certain way. And so I have no regrets in that way. It's just, it would be nice for me to hear that one back again too, because that one was, I agree with you, a lot more urgent, a lot rawer, and a lot bigger, a mm -hmm. lot meaner. Like, like if you saw us live, you know, it was, it was, there was more angst in it. I'll give you that for sure, 100%. Some of it was, I wish some I had of, it. Some of it was absolutely savage. You know, it, it's so, so let's step back. Let's look at your one, Screaming for Change, Staring into the Sun, and Blood Days. I mean, there's an arc there between those two different bodies of work. What stuff do you prefer? Or do you prefer? You know, it's fun. I'm, I'm able to look at it and, or listen to it. And, and uh, I, I really like... The UR1 is something, especially the, the first recordings, they were, there's such fond memories of, of going into the Casbah with Chaz, setting up all live um, and playing right there, bing, every song, bam, bam, bam. That's how tight we were, bam, 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 just like that. And I remember doing stuff like this in the middle of a song, my cymbal, um, my cymbal broke, um, right where the cymbal meets the arm. And I'm trying to get duct tape to put it back up. And I pull the duct tape, smack it. It comes back, hits me in the right between the eyes and slices my nose wide open, like uh, between my eye, right between my eyes, blood mm -hmm. everywhere. And they're like, okay, well, you know, it's rolling. You better get going. So we had to continue. <laughs> we had to continue playing and there's blood dripping down my face. I put duct tape on the wound and we just kept going stuff like that. I remember because I, I was fortunate enough to be there about how fun that was. So I love that. I love getting back together with Johnny Mastro and with, uh, with the Dale, uh, Joe Foster and, uh, and doing, uh, doing, getting together and doing those songs. That was a lot of fun. I enjoy listening to those songs. Um, when I do rarely listen to the stuff that I've done, but I do. And, and uh, I was fortunate enough with the boys in uniform choice to be to add a couple of the songs to Spring for Change, they allowed me to to well, let's write a couple of songs and add it on there with you playing because Big Pat Dyson did a fantastic job on, on uh, the original tracks. And then I said, Hey Pat, you know you're kind of all uh, uh, lyriced out. I got a couple of thoughts for for once I cry and for Scream for Change, and he allowed me to do that, and I really appreciated that. So those things I love fondly, um, and I you know I got to play all of those songs on uh, the two tours and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. heads and all that stuff it was wonderful uh it was a great time and, and and to get into the final one with with uh with uh staring in the sun i i enjoy a lot of staring in the sun there are songs that that i like more than others and there are songs i you know i you know i cringe at um but um i have fond memories of trying to come up with new ways to 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 inspire ourselves and inspire people so and it, trust me dan we knew that it was a, a change and that there would be people that would be angry at the change, but you've got to be true to who you are, especially at the time. Like, this is what we want to do. Vic was like, Oh, I've got an idea about this and not just playing all of his downstrokes as fast as he can. 
And I'm like, well, I mean, we were like, let's let's try it. Let's do it. This mm-hmm. is fun. This is who we are now. Yeah. It's it's a funny thing. Real opinion and opinion as expressed on the social networks are two different. And it is fun to shoot down people who show up on the social networks and say, no, I love that second uniform choice album. I think it's better than Screaming for Change and blah, 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 blah. And I pipe in snarky as I'll get out. You know, I mean, I, I take umbrage. I got hey, Dan, to do- let, me, let me tell you something. Yeah. I, I wouldn't expect anything else. And I'd, I'd, I'd come over and we put the boxing gloves on if you were not exactly who you are, because that's what I love about you. Well, what's funny is anybody who gets into a longer conversation will have me admit, you know, I went from carrying age voice box to 411. There was a necessary exploration for me. And I think for most any artist, you know what I mean? I mean, well, let's talk about Bondi. He's a, to me, a bit of a superhero. Well, Jones very an alloy do not sound like articles of faith, and thank God, you know. I remember getting <laughs> getting the uh, the tapes of that and listening to it because I, I I heard it just uh, I knew who he was, of course, and I knew a uh, article of faith. I knew all. I'm like, okay, are we going to get something like that? And then I hear the haunting agony in his voice mm-hmm. about the stuff that he was that he was singing. I just said, wow, that's uh, that came from something I, I have no idea where this came from and I wasn't expecting it. And it was, I remember going, God, this is, this is what to me, hardcore is. It's about, it's about stepping out of your comfort zone and about being who you are. And sometimes that is not a very popular thing to do, but, right. um, it, but you know, if you're not true to who you are, it seems like a cliche, but it's the truth. If you're not true to you, you're not going to be a very happy person for very long. Well, at the risk of becoming hypocritical about something I said about 10 minutes, to me, there is nothing more nauseating than a 50-year-old doing an 18-year-old's dance and not adding any new depth to it. Boy, I tell you what, you and I, listen, talking about uh, just uh, quickly about about when uh, Joe Foster gave me a call uh, to play in with, with what eventually became Winds of Promise with with uh, with uh, Joey Nelson is that's exactly right. We're not going to now. We played live. We we were fortunate enough to play a couple of shows around here, Gorilla Biscuits and, and things like that. And we went to Europe, but and so we played one uniform story song, a Unity song. We played uh, uh, you know uh, an Ignite song, but all the stuff we did was right now. What we recorded was right now. Us coming up with stuff and enjoying it and. I actually had and still do have an absolute fondness for Joe Foster's ability. Even back, it reminded when I was just a kid and we were working together, my ability and his ability to kind of come up with stuff that we like. Mm -hmm. Hardcore licks, dag nasty-ish type of DC licks that I loved in Orange County, old Orange County, OC type of stuff, uniform choice, unity stuff, coming up with stuff. And that was just magical for me to just laugh and fight and scream at each other and laugh and him, you know, I, I, I know a, a lot of people that know Joe is he's very sarcastic and that's exactly how I am. So we're back and forth at each other, but just, just to get back that after 30 years, which I never thought I was ever going to um, play in a band again, let alone a hardcore band. That was, that was something that I'll never forget. And I appreciate uh, to Joe very much for including me and pulling me back in because it was sure was a lot of fun. And we, we did a couple of albums that I really like. I like a lot of the stuff in it. It's kind of, you know, me as, as Joe Nelson said, it's 
it's kind of fun playing because you're stuck in 1988. You know, I, I didn't <laughs> do the progression in the last 30 years. Cause I was like, no, let's do this. And I'd hum stuff to Joe and Joe would laugh and we'd do it. And you know, that was fun for me. It was, it's, it's interesting. You know, when I say a 15 year old doing an 18 year old dance to me, there is nothing wrong with playing old songs. It is, as you're saying, you did in Europe and as I'm even about to do stuff with an old band of mine. It's that whole unwillingness to share your current self simultaneously with others. And yeah, yeah things I, like I, things I, like Wins of Promise were very much in the now, is what I'm trying to say. Well, I, I I appreciate that, even though I was stuck in, you know, like they're like, no, no, I know Joan Foster was funny. He goes, you know how I know how to play the guitar a little bit better than I did 30 years ago. I go, yeah, that's okay. I really enjoyed the stuff you were doing 30 years ago, but you know, it's relevant for me now. So um, for that, I appreciate it. But I do agree with what you're saying is guys that, you know, that are going and doing things and not sticking their neck out because they can, you know, they can, if they want to, they choose not to, to come up with stuff probably, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, but probably because they don't want to be ridiculed. Who wants to right. be ridiculed? No one wants to be ridiculed for me. I don't care. Ridicule right. me all you like, just, you know, that's okay. That's who I am. You take the good with the bad, because if you only think you're going to, you're going to glean the good you're only going to have half the message. And, and, you know, I don't mind people um, not liking certain things that I did or disagreeing with what I did. You know, that's what a dialogue is all about. And I'm okay with that. When you went out and uh, played out on those songs, you did the work with field day, you did the, the time overseas. What caught you off guard? What was dramatically different now from when you were growing up? Oh, wow. Um, the, the intelligence of the audience yeah. The um, and, and I mean that in, in a really thoughtful way. Um, they know your history. They know what you've done. I had a couple of conversations, uh, I think one in Prague and in one I forgot somewhere else with uh, kids uh, uh, that were, you know, maybe 15, 16 years old who were asking me questions and telling me things about my experiences when I was 15, 16, 17 years old mm -hmm. in, in bands I was in that I forgot about. So I would sit there and laugh. Oh, do you remember you did this and you did this, you did this, you did this. And here, you, and I would just bust up laughing. It was fun. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, Pat, I have touched on, on most of the stones that I wanted to. And you, you grabbed my closer when you put up about the boxing. That's the last thing on my outline. Oh, no, man. That was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. But listen, I cannot thank you enough for giving me the time tonight, sir. It's my pleasure, Danny. And uh, I wish you well. And, uh, and I think that uh, what you're doing and how you're, you're plugging along is admirable and wonderful. Thank you. So that is episode 48 of Dano Says So. And trust me, people, I will never ask for a rematch. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all <laughs> and my name's bob and my name's patrick and usually we're joined by tom tom's the best tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work but we talk about decidedly not so grown-up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like so that could be the latest shows uh revisiting classic material talking about the new classics 
um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. <laughs>